This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and I'm very happy to have Rowan Kent back in the building. Rowan, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Doing great. The weather outside is frightful for me, but it's finally starting to thaw, but I have a lot more time on my hands, so here I am. Yeah, my brother, who's going to school on the East Coast, sent us a picture of all the snow uh, <laughs> right around his dorm and... You know, I had to make a classic California joke of, wait, what's that weird white powdery stuff? <laughs> not exactly enough? something you... Oh. <laughs> oh, no, there's enough weird white powdery stuff all around. The, it's it's winter wonderland, but a few weeks too late. Shout out to Scott Skiles. Those of you who know, who know. Anyway, moving right along, let's get to the subject of today's podcast. And we're talking about your recent article on Dylan Jones. And I wanted to start with, you know, some of the stuff sort of leading up to this article recently on the no ceiling side. And I thought it was interesting that Dylan went quite a bit higher in the mock draft that we did versus the big boards that we did. And I think it's pretty telling in the sense that, you know, maybe in terms of raw potential or, you know, specific positional fit, you might have some people at no ceilings who are, you know, slightly lower on him, but when it comes around to the mock draft and, you know, we're all, in the room debating who should go where there are a lot of teams where oh dylan jones that makes a lot of sense so you know it was interesting to me that he ended up going higher in the mock than the big board but you know before we sort of get into the specifics of your article what did you sort of think about that gap between you know where he was on the sort of raw evaluation of the big board versus when it came time to try and fit player and team for the mock draft in looking at all of the big boards that came together to make the no ceilings sort of big board that we just released for Dylan Jones. It makes sense that he's somewhere in that maybe later range. There's a lot to like about him. The deeper that you look into his game, even more is just really appealing. But I think that there are a lot of guys who are worth taking a swing on, in my opinion, in yours, in all of ours. And it may push him down on the consensus. But as you're saying, when it comes down to looking at guys who might be able to have an impact on a team in the near future or in the long term, yeah, Dylan Jones is someone who, if you were a team, if you were, say, a few people deliberating on a call on a Saturday morning, Dylan Jones really fits a bill and is a lot easier to project, even though he plays a pretty distinct role right now. So let's actually use that as an opportunity to transition into the article that you wrote. And you titled it Down to Earth Heliocentrism. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, this is the sort of conversation that we're starting with here in that 
on the one hand, you know, the translation from his role at Weber State to the role he will potentially fill at the NBA seems unlikely that he's going to be a 2010 and five guy at the NBA level. But, you know, I think the flip side of that is, you know, essentially what you mentioned early on in the article. So I'm just going to quote you directly because you're going to say it a lot better than I could. Not every player who's the end all be all of their college or professional team can be the sun that stirs the stars for their offense. And, you know, I think that's a very interesting sort of way of looking at it in the sense of, yeah, sure, you don't project him to be the, you know, alpha and the omega of the offense of whatever NBA team he goes to. But the flip side of that is the skills that have made him able to do what he's been able to do for Weber State you know, is very easy to see sort of scaling down to a smaller role. So I'm curious, what do you think about that sort of transition for him between, you know, what we're looking at for his college game versus what he might look like at the NBA level? In terms of that, it makes sense both in projecting the future to think about how long it's taken him to get to this point of being the heliocentric guy for Weber State. He's there for his fourth year where he's Last year, he was starting to get a bit of buzz, and now he's really established himself as someone who deserves a lot of the attention, but it's been a slower build. He has stayed at Weber State. Uh, The transfer portal calls for everyone with offers of money to playing time and anything, and he has slowly grown from playing off of the bench more as like that spark plug, becoming a starter, and really... The fact that he's seen his skills grown without simply, you know, playing four years as the guy, it does speak to the fact that he knows how to play in a role just as a really basic read on it. But getting into the way that he gets his buckets, the way he sets other guys up, how he generates turnovers, all of those really do speak to if he needs, he can scale it down, really focus on it's not even, I'd say a handful of skills that are so NBA ready. And it's like a shooting specialist in the way of someone like Sam Hauser. He has a bit more versatile elements to his game, which should help him on any given night, maybe specialize in a few different places that the team needs there. I think that's the perfect way of putting it in that, you know, he's someone who's maybe not got, you know, the ridiculously elite skill, right? He's not, you know, one of the top 1% of 1% of athletes. He's not, as you mentioned, a shooting specialist, you know, but the thing is when you're talking about his NBA transition, you know, it's the kind of thing that I talk about pretty frequently on here of avenues to playing time, right? Of the idea that in a context where he's a secondary ball handler off the bench, he could really work. If he's in a context where he's, you know, sort of a fill-in guy who, you know, focuses more on the defensive end and gets buckets when the ball gets to him. You know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, on the one hand, sure, if you have one very elite skill, it's easier to see, oh, okay, so he's going to be a shooter and that's going to be what he does, right? You know, for someone like Dylan Jones, the idea is, okay, you know, maybe he's not going to be the best guy on the floor at any one thing, but You know, if you have a 6'6 guy who can play great defense and, you know, handle potentially bigger players on that end, while also being a ball handler who can run a second side pick and roll, it's the kind of thing where, okay, there are so many more contexts in which a team can say, you know what, who's the fifth guy that makes the most sense in this lineup? Oh, it's Dylan Jones. Who's the, you know, fifth starter who makes the most sense for this lineup? Oh, it's Dylan Jones. Who's the guy who makes the most sense as a break in case of emergency point guard, oh, it might also be Dylan Jones, right? And so the idea is maybe he's, you know, not as easy to project as someone who's one of the best pure shooters, but there are a lot more potential ways to say, yeah, that could work. I could see that working. I could see this working kind of thing. And even another thing that helps with that, being able to fit him in, he has great size for a lead ball handler. He has good size for a wing. He has a good wingspan if he's playing as a small ball four, I don't think you could ever get him to the five, but you'd be spreading the floor if you wanted to really space it out. He has enough like strength in his frame. His foot speed is good laterally. He's not going to beat you in a sprint, but he's going to beat you more often to a spot on defense. And yeah, just the fact that he is in this generation of bigger ball handlers of those heliocentric creators in the vein of Cade Cunningham, Luka Doncic, who see over everyone, you obviously wouldn't scale either guy of those two down, 
if you had to scale Dylan Jones down, he's perfectly able to do it given that size. And I think, you know, sort of getting into the first section here, the Weber State's solar system section. Wow, I really read through that one excellently. Anyway, um, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to the sort of general description that we talked about already. You know, as you say in the piece, he's not a fantastic vertical athlete, but he has a good first step that gets him into the lane and plays into one of his biggest strengths as a player, his driving. And I think that's a lot of the conversation with Dylan Jones is, you know, he's not fantastic at any one thing but he's got such a solid baseline level of skill that it's easy to see the floor for him at the nba level being much higher than someone who you know maybe has a you know great vertical leap but you know has a few other weaknesses that are a bit easier to exploit and alongside of that he's had for the past two years six free throw attempts a game him going to the rim is a legitimate weapon He's not someone who's going to suck in the defense every single time. He is going to be able to finish around. He is going to be able to get fouls. And at some point, if you're when I'm evaluating, there are going to be so few people who move the needle that much as a driver. It's that important of a skill, but the best ones are one of one. You can count them on two hands, and there's maybe one if it's generational two, if it's another year might be zero, actual, just pristinely impactful drivers. Dylan Jones is a good driver of the basketball. He has a lot of ways to get his points. He has a lot of ways to get easy points as well. And that's the kind of thing we've gone back to it over and over again, because it's so relevant how you can scale it from its level now to the few drives he'll take in a game. That's a pretty good bet to get points. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's talk about his shooting now. And you mentioned in the piece, the cap on Jones's heliocentric ceiling, I'm quoting you again, cap on Jones's heliocentric ceiling at the college level is his in-between game. And this is an interesting one for me because his in-between game is something that I think is much more important at the college level than the NBA level, just purely in terms of the shot diet that he's likely to get. That being said, though, I mean... (laughs) You know, teams have been gearing defenses for years now to try and force teams into the mid-range game as much as possible. And so it's the kind of thing where, you know, I remember talking about this with Tyler Metcalf a couple of years ago when we were scouting Jaden Ivey. And, you know, the whole idea was if he can't get all the way to the rim, what does he do? And, you know, it's the kind of thing where Jaden's, you know, had flashes here and there, but hasn't been able to put it together that consistently. But the flip side of that is, it's a lot more important for Jaden Ivey to have that mid-range game than it is for someone who, you know, even now is projecting as a role player who, you know, again, probably ends up going either late in the first round or early in the second, but isn't someone you're taking with a top five pick. Exactly. I think with Jones, I watched him because he operates a lot out of high pick and roll. So there are times that the defense goes under, that they drop, and He's not shy about trying to establish 
an in-between game. He's really willing to pull up. It's just not a weapon in the way that it would need to be for Ivy, in the way that it is for a guy like Trey Young, who, if you give him space for a floater, you're asking to run back down and get into your offensive set after a bucket. And maybe Jones can develop that. I think his developmental track so far indicates that he's able to build upon weaknesses, he can sharpen strengths, and that'd be great if it happens. He probably won't get the reps to do so outside of a summer league, outside of a G League context, because I'm not sure that there are going to be a handful or even just the one franchise that would need to do it that wants to put the ball in his hands, wants to watch him work through some of those mistakes that every player makes as they establish a new part of their game. And ultimately, it probably won't matter as he starts to establish himself outside force the defenses to come up to him he'll finish inside he'll pass the ball if he wasn't as good of a passer as well it would be a bigger issue that he was real limited to one area or the other but if all he can't do is back you down at the end of a shot clock or shake you for that buzzer beating bucket not a bad floor to have I'm really glad that you brought up Trey Young in particular because he's someone who earlier this season was struggling a lot. And a lot of it was because his floater just wasn't falling. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, him being Trey Young, right? It wasn't going to be a long-term thing that the floater wasn't falling. But, you know, once he got it back, he rattled off that streak of 30 and 10 games, right? Dylan Jones is probably not going to be rattling off streaks of 30 and 10 games in the NBA. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where, If his weakness is that sort of in-between game, again, that's much less of a problem at the NBA level than at the college level, but it is a sort of interesting debate to get into in terms of the shooting. So I want to move on to that now, and I want to get your thoughts before I say anything and ruin the tone of the podcast. So what are your thoughts on sort of where his shooting is at, how the development is going, any of those sorts of things in terms of what level of confidence do you have in his shot moving forward? The level of confidence I have, I would say, is like an excited eyebrow raise. I think (laughs) that on the season right now, he's at about 37, 38%. He's taking about three a game. Great numbers for a guy who's being hounded so often. He gets a lot of spot-up looks in the Weaver State offense compared to him taking pull-ups. So the diet of shots that he's taking is more similar to what he's going to actually take when he's at the next level. At the same time, there's the risk of falling in love with someone who has a great season that is not as reflective of the past. Development is one thing, and hot shooting streaks can be another. He hasn't shot over 35% when that was his sophomore year, or his second after that first one, where even last year he... On about the same volume, 30% from the field. So his mechanics are fine. I think he gets his shot off quickly enough that it won't be a hindrance at the next level. The vertical athlete issue comes in a little bit more here where he's not, even at 6'6", and with a nice wingspan, going to be unbotherable. There could be closeouts that are going to bother him. He doesn't work as much off of screens. Not saying he can't. But right now, he hasn't had to do so. So that element of being able to move him around and quickly get a shot off from him just isn't on tape as much to make it something where you could count on it. I think there are reasons to both be skeptical and to maybe you have your pail of cold water ready and for good reason. I think that he's developed so much so far that it could be more indicative that his percentage has risen. And I don't know if it'll stay at 38%. Even at 35, as a baseline in his first few years, it'll keep him on the floor. Yeah, I think that's the way that I would look at it as well of, you know, a lot of it is the volume, right? Just him being willing to shoot at least a few threes a game. You know, it's helpful. You know, obviously you would like him to settle somewhere closer to 37% than the 30% he shot last year, right? But it's the kind of thing where, you know, okay, as long as he's, you know, in the mid thirties and taking a few of them per game, you know, that's going to be a lot more helpful than say someone who takes one or two threes a game and hits them at, you know, 37% rate. If the defense has to at least, you know, 
theoretically pay attention to him, right? That's a little bit different of a calculus than, you know, just him being sort of left alone out there. I have said numerous times on this podcast that I refer to myself as a partial free throw truther in the sense that, you know, first of all, the volume of free throw attempts versus three point attempts is much better in terms of, you know, sort of statistical significance of, okay, you know, what kind of touch does this guy have? Right. And, you know, the lack of a mid range in between game is one thing, you know, the sort of variance of the three point shooting is another thing, but he's consistently been an 80% free throw shooter, right? And I think that's a very good indication of touch on my end. The flip side is what I have referred to on this podcast as the Derek Williams principle. And unfortunately, uh, especially unfortunately as a Kings fan, but I might have to start referring to it as the Davion Mitchell conundrum as well of, you know, sometimes shooting 40% from three on a very limited sample size is not an indication of real shooting development. It's an indication of getting really hot at the right time. And Derek Williams, I don't think he cleared 30% from three-point range in any of his NBA seasons, despite shooting 40%, you know, that sophomore year at Arizona that got him drafted. But with Dylan Jones, it's the kind of thing where, again, if he ends up being a low 30s three-point shooter as opposed to a mid-30s three-point shooter, but he gets to the rim as often as he does, he gets fouled as often as he does, you know, that's the kind of thing where... I think it's fine as long as the volume stays where it is and the percentage doesn't fall off that much. But again, when you're talking about three-point shooting sample sizes, I mean, he's taken 273s over the course of his college career. I mean, there are NBA guys who make that many threes in a season, right? You know, it's part of it is just the difference between length of a college schedule versus the length of an NBA schedule. You have a better idea of what the sort of baseline for three-point shooting is, but Ultimately, you know, what we have is the data that we have on file. And what that tells me is, okay, you know, decent shot. Maybe he's taken a real step forward. Maybe last year was just a bit of bad shooting luck. And he's just a mid-30s three-point shooter, which, you know, 35% uh, year two at Weber State, 37% this year. Maybe that's just what he is, mid-30s three-point shooter. And given the volume he takes it on, that's perfectly fine. I think the issue becomes, you know, when you sort of expect the trajectory to just keep on going up and up and up and up and up, like, I think the odds of him being a 40% three-point shooter on significant volume is much smaller than the odds of him being fine from out there, which given his driving game, I certainly think is good enough. For a guy like Dylan Jones, and I agree with what you're saying, I am fully for the thought process. I am behind thinking that he's not going to in any way assuredly be a threatening shooter right now. It's a weapon in his arsenal, but it could just be a very hot extended streak that changes what we think his arsenal is. Even if it starts to taper, even if it's in the lower thirties when he's an NBA player, I still think there's enough of a floor that he's going to be able to get on the floor there's enough he does well. Otherwise, it may be the difference between him being the fifth man on a good team or the eighth. And obviously, he'd want to be the fifth. I think a guy like him would want to be the first. He's shown <laughs> that he can be that guy. And if the shooting doesn't come around, it is a lot more situational. Right now, his skill set offers him more of a skeleton key element to where you can plug him in. If he can't shoot, then you're going to have to really curtail some of the situations, the lineups you put him in. That limits it. And for a guy who is appealing to me because of his floor, does lower it a bit. If he can hit towards the ceiling, I still don't know if I project him to have the same sort of star impact, but there are a lot of guys who star in their role, have really successful careers, make a lot of money, contribute to a lot of winning. It's going to hopefully take a great shooting coach. You know, if he's in OKC, if he's in San Antonio, New Orleans, places that have shown a bit more development or brought in assistant coaches who focus on that, that could be a really important step for him. I think I will wait a little bit more to see. I'm hoping to get a chance to go out and see him live since he'll go to Northern Colorado. They'll play a road game in a few weeks. I've hoped to see it get a better idea, but it may just be a bit more of a wait-and-see development, which that's the whole draft, but it makes it hard to really plant your flag on a skill and hope and then 
see if it'll actually work. Yeah, well, you know, if you're going to plant your flag on a skill for Dylan Jones, it might be the driving, it might be the passing. So let's get into that now. And I think that speaks to a lot of what you were just talking about of, you know, okay, if the shooting doesn't quite come around, you know, maybe there are fewer lineup constructions that make sense. I think the flip side of that is because he's such a good, efficient passer who makes the right reads so much more often than not, who can, you know, as you mentioned earlier, see over defenses at 6-6 as a 6-6 ball handler. It's the kind of thing where, you know, any situation that his shooting might make the fit iffy, his passing, I think, does a whole lot more to make it a lot easier to see many different line of constructions where he might make sense as opposed to, you know, again, just being pigeonholed into one particular area. And in a funny way, similar to how we were talking about his mid-range game, it being less of an issue that he doesn't have it given what he'll do at the next level. In some ways, what I didn't see from his passing and what I did see gave me less pause than it might have for a player who I expected to continue in his role. He handles the ball a lot. He handles out of the high pick and roll. He's pushing the pace in transition. There weren't a lot of times on film that he was looking for a lob or he was really dumping it to the roll man, a place where lead guards, lead ball handlers can get a lot of high value assists. Part of that is the Weber State roster and their system that they want to get a lot of shots from deep. It doesn't exactly worry me that Jones isn't generating so many lobs that he isn't doing that because again he's probably not going to be asked hey you've got to get downhill to draw in the big to open up that window his passes a lot more the windows he was hitting were into shooters pockets while he was on the move to guys that were open or that he helped to get open on the wing and those are passes that if someone bends the defense they kick it out to jones him being able to hit those at a really consistent level, that's going to keep giving him value. Being able to, when he's cutting, catch it, quickly spread it around, that's going to give him that value. He has the wingspan that a lot of jumbo creator guys have, where he's not going to be limited as often by the opposing defense on where he can fit a pass. That's notable and that's important for keeping an offense going. And so... I think that passing element that he has is really going to keep any part of his floor that could slip from the shooting at that stable level where in that 24 to 32 range that we've talked about, teams are going to feel really comfortable drafting. I'm glad that you brought up the lob thing because I think that's an interesting discussion, you know, both in the specific for Jones and sort of in the more general. I mean, you know, again, a lot of these takes are biased by me watching more of the Sacramento Kings than any other NBA team, but there are quite a few teams that just, you know, don't really either don't have lob threats or don't sort of emphasize that as an element of the offense. But basically every team in the NBA these days, even even the Orlando Magic, who are very shooting averse, right? Every team could use someone who can collapse a defense and spray the ball out to shooters, right? So it's the kind of thing where, you know, sure, if he were an excellent lob passer, you know, it would maybe make a lot more sense for him to go somewhere like Detroit, where you have Jalen Duran catching lobs, or, you know, San Antonio, right? Victor Wembanyama can catch basically anything, right? But a lot more teams need guys who can spray the ball out to shooters than teams who need someone who can throw a lob pass. And especially, again, when you're talking about a guy who's going to be scaling down at the NBA level, you know, it's going to be more important for him to create, you know, second side actions and be someone who's, you know, kicking the ball out rather than, oh, the entire defense is going to focus in on him. So there's a backdoor lob opportunity. Yeah. And I found it as a fun wrinkle, even now, he obviously is a defense look at him so much. The passes that he uses where he's manipulating the defense, they're just a bit of a treat to watch. Like he has a lot of no look feeds. I noticed he was starting to, it's more of he'll turn his whole body than play a pure no look and feed it. Those are a bit more translatable in the way of he can use a head fake, he can manipulate people. I don't count on that being the thing that sells anyone. It's more of a bit icing on top of the passing that you're talking about and the actual utility of it. But he has a talent to dump it off around people on drives, these sort of hits to cutters because. A lot of guys from the perimeter cut in in the Weber State offense. He finds them. He's able to hit those. 
these are the kinds of passes that they will keep him on the floor, they raise his floor, and they're valuable. They're not flashy. They're not going to end up on a lot of highlight reels. They're going to end up more on the tape that opposing teams have to watch to know that Jones is going to do this night in and night out. Yeah, I have talked before about how much I love looking into cutting as a skill. It's one of the things that fascinates me the most about draft prospect evaluation, just in the sense that there are some prospects who I would expect to be excellent at it, who are awful at it, and the exact flip side of, you know, guys who aren't the most athletic, but, you know, have this sort of innate sense of, okay, defense has turned, you know, defenders turned his head just far enough that I can make the cut. It's the kind of thing where, you know, again, sort of going back to my previous point of cutters are emphasized a lot more than lob threats specifically. And so, you know, for someone who, again, is going to be a secondary or tertiary creator, the ability to find guys down low for cuts is going to be a lot more critical to, you know, finding playing time and finding a sort of long-term NBA role than just, you know, being able to throw the ball up for the Jalen Durants of the world. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's almost interesting to wonder, too, Jones hasn't been asked to do a lot of cutting in the past few seasons. There could be an element for him to unlock. There are guys who have been the man on their college team scaling down. What can they do with cutting and showing a skill that they just weren't asked to because they're asked to carry a much heavier load? I'd be a bit more bullish given the improvements he's made, the strength he has in his lower body to be able to, like, if there's contact while he's cutting still, get to the rim or open up the space, whether it's for someone else or to pass it out. It could be more of an invisible area of growth where the more visible one would be, can he keep the shooting up? This could be a place where what if he adds this other off-ball element that he just hasn't been asked to do? Yeah, it's fascinating. He currently has six cuts all season (laughs) for Weaver State, which I think is pretty telling in and of itself. But, you know, if you go back to his first season at Weaver State where he was in a much smaller role, according to Synergy, he was in the 93rd percentile as a cutter, 1.5 points per possession. So it's the kind of thing where... You know, it's really funny, first of all, that he has literally four times as many cutting possessions when he barely played his first season as opposed to right now. But, you know, also it's the kind of thing where, again, it is fascinating to me sort of the breakdown between guys who have really good understanding of, you know, how to pass to cutters versus can't cut themselves. Or, you know, the prototypical example for me of this was Kendall Brown of, wow, this guy's a spectacular cutter on offense. And goodness, he gets back cut every single possession on defense so it's a variable skill but again it's the kind of thing where in a different role dylan jones was very successful as a cutter and so it's not that hard for me to project in a smaller role him you know having that sort of intuitive sense that he does with his passes being able to take advantage of that as the off-ball guy rather than the guy with the ball in his hands yeah and i will it is an interesting thought on that defensive point too with kendall brown that's I think I remember it more, as you say it too, to just think about what he did and why I liked him at first. And then the less you like, the more you see in some elements of his. I think Jones will be able to hold up just a bit more on the defensive end for the reasons that he'll hold up on the offensive end, even if some of his more cherry on top elements don't work. The brain that he has, the reflexes and the anticipation, those are all going to help him to not have that same label put on him if he starts to show that cutting ability. That's actually a perfect opportunity to transition into talking about the defense. So let's take a dip into the defense, as you say in the article, and you lead off with something that I think is incredibly important to discuss for prospects, and that's the turnover generation idea. And, you know, I've talked many times before on this feed about how steals rates in college slash non-NBA levels translate better to the next level than pretty much any other stat. The flip side of that, though, is there are a lot of guys who get a ton of steals by gambling on every possession. And for every steal they get, they get back cut four times for easy baskets. And, you know, it's interesting to me with Jones in that, again, you know, a lot of it seems like it's not just him jumping to try and get the steal. It's him reading plays more often than it is. I'm just going to gamble and three out of four times I fail, but that one time looks pretty on the highlight reel. Exactly. I think even watching him, there are some plays where it isn't even that he's read the defense well. He's able to react so quickly. He just sort of springs where they're not expecting him. 
And that's more of a mental and reflex play than that gambling. Being able to generate turnovers given what else he's being asked to do defensively is why I see some value for him and what'll really push him up, not just for the way it did for me, but I think for teams as they look at him. He has the ball in his hand so much. He's not going to be asked to be a stopper. He's not even really going to be asked to carry that heavy of a load right now for his team. He's still making a difference. Having more than 2.7 for his steal percentage all four years shows that in each role that he's had, he's still working, he's still contributing, and he still has the skill set and tools to contribute in ways that matter. It matters to contest a shot. It can really flip just tight games to get that extra turnover, to be able to give your team a few more possessions. And it goes back to the discussion that we were having about versatility, which, you know, another feature of that is, as you mentioned, his defensive rebounding, which is dramatic. And it's funny because I actually recently wrote about a different Dylan who has seen his game explode by getting a lot more defensive rebounds, that being Dylan Mitchell for Texas. And the idea being, you know, especially someone like Dylan Jones, I mean, even for Mitchell, who's shown real improvements as a passer this year, but for someone like Mitchell, who's as good as he is creating opportunities for others, the ability for him to just grab and go is the kind of thing that, you know, again, makes it a lot easier to see him fitting in different contexts. And when you combine that with the steals percentage and, you know, his ability to, I mean, at 6'6 and 235 pounds, you know, he's not going to be guarding ones. He's not going to be guarding fives. But, you know, if you're just throwing him on, you know, whoever's left between the two through four, you know, again, with his defensive rebounding, you can, you know, see him being useful in sort of more of a big focus role. You know, if you're talking about his steals rate, you can see him as someone who, okay, you know, maybe is not guarding the quickest guy on the perimeter, but, you know, is someone who will be able to deal with bulkier players, will be able to, you know, find a role in sort of a bigger lineup where he's, you know, sort of more viewed as the two. You know, as you mentioned in the piece, again, you said it a lot better than I ever could, where Jones can excel at the next level is as a connective team defender. And I think that's really a lot of, you know, what you see in the numbers, as well as, you know, what you see on the film of him being someone who, okay, you know, maybe he's not your defensive stopper, right? But, you know, if you need someone to fill a role as a forward, there are a lot of different things that he can do that make you think, okay, you know, he can cover for bad rebounding. He can cover for, you know, a lot of great man-to-man defenders who can't really generate turnovers. There's a lot of different ways that he can help out a defense without being sort of the primary guy that's relied upon on any sort of defensive session. And no team is going to draft him with any hope of him being that guy. I think whatever team is going to select him they have their philosophy, they have their pieces. Imagining him with Chet, with Victor, those guys are there to change the geometry, to clean up the back end. They can't succeed in the same ways. I mean, we're seeing in some ways it appears Wembenyama can, if you look at some of the advanced numbers and he's a one of one for a reason. But without the same team defenders who can stick to the concepts, who can funnel players in the way that the scheme is asking, who can just make those plays, it's essential. Dylan is the kind of guy who will fit more into a team context, and it's not derogatory. We look for guys who can just be a brick wall. He has the strength to befuddle guys who are trying to get in there. Team defender is something that When I watched Grady Dick last year, he brought so much on the offensive end. He was smart with the steals that he attempted. He would get into the right position. That added, for me, when I was looking at him, a lot more upside. Where I know he's at a slower start, I still remain bullish on what he can do when he gets a few more years and gets to bank on those instincts. I think it would be the same for Jones. Even if he, like most rookies, has some struggles on the defensive end, In a few years, I wouldn't be surprised to see the same kinds of flashes that he shows night in, night out for the Wildcats, and that's going to matter for the winning time for that team. And I think there's a very distinct difference between Grady Dick and Dylan Jones that you bring up at the end of the defense section, which is Grady Dick wasn't even the heliocentric guy for Kansas when he was, you know, that was Jalen Wilson dominating a lot of those opportunities. So for Dylan Jones, you know, it's the idea of, 
hey, if you're expending a lot less energy on the offensive end, you have more energy for the defensive end. And that's a calculus that, you know, a lot of young star players have to deal with. But for Jones, it's almost the opposite of like, okay, you figured out how to best conserve and use your energy when you have it, right? Because you're expected to carry such a massive load on the offensive end. What happens when you have a much smaller level of responsibility on the offensive end, you can focus more of your energy on defense. And, you know, again, that's a discussion that is applicable for Jones in a way that it wouldn't have even been applicable for Grady Dick. It makes him such a fun evaluation that way too. He is someone you consider, what would you look like scaling back? It's almost always the opposite. We think, what would it look like scaled up? How can we look at per 40 minutes, per 100 possessions? I think about the same things, but it takes that kind of special caliber of guy that I think Jones is to be looked at as such a versatile role player. And so it is exciting in that very nerdy way to think about what could his defense look like if he gets to expend that energy. Yeah, I'm I'm on the same page as you. I think there are a lot of fascinating teams where that could happen, a lot of roles. And so that's what gives me a lot of optimism. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. So let's wrap up by getting to your concluding section. And I love the way you started this out. Um, Before getting into any fit at the next level, appreciating how awesome of a player Dylan Jones is for Weber State is worth appreciating. And that's a big one for me. And I think this year in particular, it stands out to me in that there's so much discussion around, oh, you know, Zach Eadie's a dominant college big, but is he, you know, ever going to be able to do anything at the next level? It's like, it's the same sort of thing for me when, there are a lot of people who just purely get into the rings discussion of like, you weren't a good NBA player if you don't have any rings. Like, I think Charles Barkley had a better NBA career than Pat McCaw, personally. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's just me. Who knows? But Hot take. Yeah, I know. Spicy. <laughs> Gotta close out the podcast with a spicy take. But, you know, I think it's very, very important to sort of look at the fact of, yeah, okay, he's going to scale down at the next level, right? Like, you know, who knows, maybe he hits his 99.9th percentile outcome and ends up being, you know, at some point in his NBA career, playing a similar role to what he's playing at Weber State. But even above and beyond that, there are so few players who are able to do what he's able to do with any sort of capacity at the college level. And, you know, again, specifically in this year, you know, the year of Zach Eady, right? I think it's very important to be like, okay, you know, maybe this guy who's a college star doesn't succeed at the NBA level to the same degree, right? I mean, you know, I think arguably last year it was a similar thing of, you know, and he's a different sort of player than Edie, but, you know, Drew Timmy, right? Someone who pretty clearly was not going to be more than like a cup of coffee guy at the NBA level, but he was a dominant college big for a long time. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that, I don't know, I think this is... (laughs) I'm getting way more philosophical here than I intended to, but you know, sometimes it's just nice to appreciate nice things. Oh, yeah. And there's been a season, you can have an up or a down for a team you think has been dominant for a player that's looked really good. There were, what, five top 10 teams that lost to unranked opponents last year or uh, last week. It's just a lot of fun to get to see what's going to happen. Jones has brought the consistency where you're not wondering, oh, what kind of roller coaster is his team on? You're excited to see how much he's going to get to contribute to their winning. We've talked a lot of the theoretical side of what can he be at the next level. I was trying to figure out what, in just like running queries, what it would look like. It was hard. He has a unique set of skills 
the unique opportunity to continually flex those. And while I don't think he's going to be, you know, Ben Simmons, who fits into the same thing, who is a very fascinating, like, re-eval, because I don't think I'd change where he was, but it is interesting to look at what he did or didn't improve on from that year to now. A guy like Kyle Anderson, who people might be like, ooh, Kyle Anderson is the comparison. I think Kyle Anderson is an apt, like, statistical, less apt stylistic, but pretty great comparison to have if you're thinking about the future in the NBA. He's stuck around. He's been on the Spurs, the Timberwolves. He's made a winning impact. He's a guy who they put on the floor when they need to change the momentum, when they need to stabilize a run. I think Jones can fit into that same way, and we'll still get to see the same things that are just so awesome about how he's played this year in just maybe more diluted flashes in the next years. I think the Kyle Anderson comparison is fantastic. And I think this actually leads back into a more sort of philosophical discussion of Kyle Anderson was the 30th pick in the 2014 NBA draft. And you don't even need to look through the names in that draft to know that there were at least a few of the 29 players picked ahead of him did not have as long or as successful NBA careers. And, you know, I think it's particularly important in a draft like this one where there's a whole lot of debate and a whole lot of confusion about, you know, who goes where, you know, who's going to fit in what sort of situation. And I think it's, you know, even more imperative. I mean, I've talked about this before, you know, specifically with Jay Crowder, just because he's the sort of prototypical example of this for me of, wow, this guy was really, really successful in college. And basically all of that translated, but we're not going to take him at 24. We're going to take the wild swing on the 19-year-old ridiculous athlete with potential, right? And it's really funny that, you know, we ended up slotting him to the Oklahoma City Thunder at 24 because you compare him to someone like, you know, say, Hamadou Diallo, right, of, wow, you know, there's so much potential, so much potential, and the potential never turns out versus, you know, an older college player, right, four-year college player, but proven successful in multiple different roles, proven that, you know, he can scale up or scale down because he has before, right? And, you know, it's a similar thing to, okay, you know, is Kyle Anderson someone who's going to be a superstar? No, like he's average for his career seven points a game, right? But he started in multiple slots, you know, as you've talked about, he's been a valuable role player this year for an excellent Minnesota Timberwolves team. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, again, there are only so many players that actually work out from every draft. And I think people tend to sort of overestimate, you know, just how many players work out from every draft. So, you know, when you're talking about the latter portions of the first round and you're talking about someone like Dylan Jones, where, okay, you know, I think even more relatable for him than Kyle Anderson specifically, but okay, he's not going to be the star of you know the NBA team like he was for the college team. But, you know, as we've talked about frequently on this particular episode, like there's a very high floor with Dylan Jones. And so, you know, even if he ends up being, you know, like Kyle Anderson, a mid thirties, three point shooter, you know, even if he ends up being someone who mostly comes off the bench and, you know, maybe gets a few spot starts here and there, a bench rotation player at, you know, 25, especially when you're talking about the kinds of teams that are picking at 25, you know, they don't need superstars. If you're at the back end of the first round, they just need guys who can fit in and play a role. And, you know, if you're talking about rolling the dice on a 19 year old prospect versus I'm pretty confident that Dylan Jones can be our ninth man, right? It's the kind of thing where, you know, especially in a confusing draft like this one, maybe that's what sort of sees him rise up the ranks as he did literally between our big board and our mock draft of, okay, you know, just raw sort of ranking the prospects, you know, maybe he ends up falling lower. But when you're talking about, okay, what do the Oklahoma City Thunder need? Gosh, Dylan Jones would be a really great fit there. Yeah, I think the certainty he offers, as you were saying so well, in a year full of uncertainty, it's going to matter. I wonder if there's even a bit more room if the uncertainty surrounding other guys starts to become more glaring, where it becomes even more than the teams at the end of the first round. Teams in the middle of the first say, let's bring Jones in for a workout. Wouldn't it be great to be able to count on him as a guy we could get in the rotation, if not next year, in two years? The Rockets have played really well this year comparatively to last. I still think that having guys they can really count on as they start to come out of their rebuild, just like a number of other teams, they're going to value having a guy 
who can be a backstop to minutes if there's an injury, if there are fouls, if you need to go to the bench. And Jones is someone who even offers more than backstop. I think that he's someone who there will be games we'll watch in the future. We'll see Dylan Jones get a steal. We'll see him make the right pass. We'll be like, man, I wish my team had that guy. He has that sort of appeal. He has that kind of impact. And it just feels translatable, even though his game itself, the way he's playing, probably isn't going to translate that way exactly. I am wrong a lot, and I think anyone in the draft space who's honest with themselves will admit that they're wrong a lot, but one that I got right that I think fits perfectly into the exact discussion you were just having is Jaime Jaquez, right? And if you were to redraft right now, Jaime Jaquez goes a lot higher than 18, and it's the kind of similar concept to Dylan Jones, right, of Jaime Jaquez was the leader of the UCLA offense. He goes to Miami. He has a slightly smaller role, but, you know, when Jimmy Butler's been out, he's put up a few 30-point games. And again, it's the kind of thing where, you know, that's certainly earlier for Jaime Jaquez being as good as he is than even I expected as someone who was super high on him. But again, it's the kind of thing where he's just a good all-around basketball player. And it's a lot easier to find your way into a rotation and to stick in that rotation if you are that, as opposed to, you know, again, what we've been talking about of the, you know, betting on super high potential or the betting on someone with one elite skill who maybe doesn't do enough else to justify their playing time on the court. With Dylan Jones, that's not going to be the issue. I'm thinking about him and Hawkins playing together. You got me on that tangent, too. Like, he would, he, yeah, his fits in those places. It's, it's tempting. It's tantalizing. It's tangible. That's what jones's main appeal is is tangible right now it's gonna be tangible for whatever team he goes to and it's it's a lesson in the same way that it is for Hawkes of seeing how it's translating i think i'll keep jones tentatively rising and not to a ridiculous point but i can bank on what he can do maybe in more ways than other guys and i think i'll feel pretty good about that all right anything else you want to cover here before we wrap this one up sounds about good on my end All right. Well, he is Rowan Kent. You can find him on Twitter at Rowan Kent, and you can find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. Always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dive specific portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.